Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, really it's good. going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Hello, it's September's Space Boffins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham and this is Sue Nelson. Hello, this month we'll hear some Americans get very emotional about an eclipse, talk to the Cassini Mission Project scientist about the final demise of the spacecraft and meet a space engineer who's met all the right people. The former Senate director, Jay Honeycutt, called me over and he said, tell me about SpaceX, what are they up to? You know, And I was, I was telling them what I knew about SpaceX and this guy leans in from the group and says, excuse me, can I introduce myself? I'm Neil Armstrong. And also with the 60th anniversary of Sputnik approaching, what's going to happen in space in the next 60 years? That's just one of the questions we failed to prepare our guest for. She's mm. space journalist, <laughs> author and broadcaster, Sarah Crudders. Hello, how are you Hello, doing? very well, thank you. Uh, you, you t- yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's not a joke. <laughs> yeah, it's a space podcast, Sarah. It's good, um, it's good. You do a lot of hanging around with um, space type, space entrepreneurs, particularly. Yeah. You've been doing a lot of that in, in California. Do, do they they have a vision do you think do they have this big vision or do they just want to make a ton of cash no i think it's it's about humanity and it's about progressing uh, humanity away from earth i don't think anyone who wants to make a quick buck is investing in space if you look at someone like jeff bezos he's selling a hundred million in amazon stock every year to fund blue origin and he wants to help improve life on earth so i don't think it is about a quick buck but in terms of vision i i think when we had Apollo, it was clear there was one goal. Um, it was a race to the moon. But now we're seeing some private companies who want to mine asteroids, some who want to mine the moon, some who want to take manufacturing into low Earth orbit, You know, some who want to go to Mars, some who want to design new clothes to wear in space. We're seeing a really broad spectrum of stuff. But what I would say is, while it's not about money, at the same time, business drives forward innovation. And as soon as you start making money, which everything that is you'll then see more progression in that particular sector. Well, we'll talk more about 60 years in space a little later on. Now, there are just a few days to go before the final demise of the Cassini mission. On the 15th of September, the spacecraft will do some amazing manoeuvres and disintegrate as it plunges into Saturn. Launched in 1997, Cassini has spent the last 13 years exploring the Saturn system. Last month, we heard from one of the scientists on the mission, Carl Murray, who even brought along some great stuff, including his Cassini perfume. Well, um, this month, we've got the project scientist for the entire mission, Linda Spilka. Well, when I met up with her at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, I asked her how hard it will be to say goodbye. I worked on Cassini for almost 30 years. And during that time, I've gotten to know the spacecraft very, very well. And also, the engineers and scientists were really and truly a Cassini family. And yes, it'll be hard to say goodbye to the Cassini spacecraft, but even harder to say goodbye to this Cassini family that we've grown up together. Our kids have been born and grown up together. And saying goodbye to the Cassini family, I think, will be the toughest of all. And what about this grand finale? Are you looking forward to it? 
in a in a kind of you know just in terms of the science in terms of what you're going to get out of it because it's a whole new it's almost like a new mission yeah the grand finale is really and truly like a whole new mission no spacecraft has ever flown there before in a sense cassini had a rare opportunity and we seized it and that's so tremendously exciting to reveal saturn up close and personal in a way that we haven't done before in fact with cassini's last heartbeat on September 15th, we'll lose that intimate personal connection that we have with Saturn right now. Because once Cassini is gone, then the tiny moons close to the rings, the tiny ring moons, the narrow F-ring itself will be lost in the glare of Saturn and its rings. Except for once every 15 years, when the rings are edge on to the sun and the rings go dark, we'll catch glimpses of these tiny worlds that Cassini revealed in such breathtaking detail. And I will miss that, you know, that, that chance every day to get up, look at the pictures, what came down, you know, yesterday, and feel like I'm standing right there in the Saturn system. And sometimes, like, I'm even on the rings or on these various moons, and that's so tremendously exciting. I'm so proud to have been part of this mission. In the longer term, though, presumably you're going to be working on the data for a, a long time. There's going to be a legacy from, from this mission and follow-on missions, hopefully. Right, right. Cassini's legacy is certainly the discovery of these ocean worlds, the fact that you don't need to be at the distance that Earth is from the sun to potentially have life. And in a certain sense, we've only mined the very cream of the data, the topmost layer of the data. And who knows what other discoveries await in the detailed analysis that will probably take place over the next decades. Who knows how many PhD theses and other things will will come from the Cassini data, so leaving a wonderful legacy uh, behind. And what about follow-on missions? I know lots of people have a lot of interest in a lot of missions. Yeah, there's potential for follow-on missions. In particular, there's a New Frontiers program, and the NASA proposals just went in the end of April. And in that suite of missions are three opportunities to go back to Saturn. One is to go back with a Saturn probe, probe to go into the atmosphere deeply in the way that Galileo did at Jupiter and understand the composition and what's going on inside of Saturn. Another one is missions to go back to Titan, perhaps to orbit Titan, perhaps to land in one of those seas. So there are opportunities to go back for more studies of Titan. And then, of course, my favorite is to go back to Enceladus to answer the question, does this tiny world not only have a habitable ocean, but does it have life? And so I'm part of a proposal team called the Enceladus Life Finder to go back to Enceladus and try to answer that question. Then, of course, there might be future missions to go back. Maybe someday we'll take a sample back to Earth of the material coming out of Enceladus's plume and use the instruments here on the Earth to really do a very careful analysis. And then, of course, what about Uranus and Neptune? You know, we've now had good missions at Jupiter and Saturn. Let's go back. We've only had the Voyager flybys. Let's go back with Cassini-like orbiters and study and unveil these ice giants and see how they fit into the context of the solar system. So really, this is just the beginning. Oh, Cassini is just the beginning, absolutely. We've left behind so many questions that just beg for a future mission to go back and answer them. 
Cassini project scientist Linda Spilker. You can hear more from Linda in Cassini's Last Adventure, our programme for the BBC World Service, which is presented by Professor Lucy Green. And you can find that on the BBC World Service website. And there's also an excellent video that accompanies it. And while I'm in plugging mood, um, plugging uh, BBC radio programmes, you can uh, still hear our programme Space 1977 on the Voyager missions. And that's presented by astronaut Ron Garan, who was, I mean, worryingly good. As a presenter, really good as a presenter. And that features music, nudity and Star Trek. Which is my idea of a perfect night in. Do you know, I, I was with Ron Garan um, last week, actually, and he, he sends his love to you, too. Oh, That's very fabulous. nice. Yeah. He was so he great. Remembers, yeah. he, was, he, was, he was really good. Let's hope it's the first of many programmes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it does, it does. Now, you've heard, you know, some of what Linda was saying there, Sarah, about Saturn and Cassini. It's It's been a fantastic mission, and lately, the last month... Social media has been flooded with the most stunning images mm. of of Saturn, the rings. Um, we've we've had the great pictures of of all the different moons, from Prometheus to Mimas, that looks like the Death Star, to Hyperion, that looks like a sponge. It is going to be sad, isn't it, to not see those anymore? <laughs> this is like what happened with Rosetta. It is. You yes. become attached to a space mission, uh, and then it ends. Um, yes, it is going to be sad, but. What is it with space missions at the moment being massive overachievers? So Voyager, we've just had the anniversary for that, and that's far gone beyond what anyone really expected from it at the time. And same with Cassini, um, mentioning Rosetta again, same with Rosetta. Yeah, I they've just all think, were extended and extended yeah, and, and extended. I think it's because we think there's one thing out there, and then I think exploring just gives us many more questions to ask instead of giving us answers, and I think that's why these missions are so exciting. Um, what I love most about this is the fact that Enceladus may harbour life. It's one of the, the top candidates for potentially having habitable conditions in the solar system and the fact that you know Cassini has to be crashed into Saturn to prevent it actually possibly accidentally colliding um, with Enceladus is just crazy and mind-boggling to think within our own solar system there could have been a second genesis and that's that's an incredible thought. It looks beautiful as a planet as well it's that icy white with you see these cracks and sort of the blue cracks with a liquid ocean, it's got the icy icy crust, there's a heat source there. So they're thinking that this life will be like you get at the bottom of oceans with hydrothermal vents. OK, there may not be light there, but there could could be life. And it, it, you're right, it's exciting because there's also Titan holds possibilities, as does Europa on Jupiter. And, of course, we've got the JUICE mission that will be going ahead. And I know that a lot of the Cassini scientists are also working on Juice, this mission to its icy moons. See, if I had to pick, I'd choose Europa. But then people I know, um, a guy called Yuri Milner, who actually um, is working in the Starshot project and Breakthrough Starshot, looking at sending missions you know, to our nearest star, but also to a moon within our own solar system to try and detect life. He says Enceladus, and he's being advised Enceladus is actually the best candidate. But um, going back to Titan as well, that's, you know, it's the only, pla- it's the only moon in our solar system with an atmosphere. Isn't that yeah. incredible? And yeah. I just think... You know, Saturn's almost like a mini solar system in itself. And I think we've learned so much, but we've got so many more questions and so many more missions. It really is correct. It is only just the beginning. I love the fact that there's part of the UK on Titan still with the Huygens probe. Yeah. And it's always going to be there. And that's incredible. Made in Milton Keynes. Made in Milton Keynes. (laughs) That we've sent stuff out there and it's it's going to be there forever. There we go. The UK does have a space (laughs) programme. What about, I mean, Linda mentioned as well Uranus and Neptune. They've been neglected 
really, haven't they? The outer solar system. These, you know, we've got two planets, and we've never been been to two them. Two and a other half than, depends if you uh, speak to Alan Stern about Pluto. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. When you've got, well, I suppose at least we've seen Pluto now yeah. in, in phenomenal detail. And if you think the detail we got with New Horizons from Pluto, what are we going to get from Uranus and Neptune? I just think. We've done the reconnaissance of the classical solar system now, but I think people often assume we know everything about space because you get almost like that school classroom poster and and you see the eight slash nine planets and then the Kuiper belt on it. And and we think we know everything, but actually we know absolutely nothing. We're just scratching the surface. And yeah, I think it's a shame money holds us back so much because, you know, there's so much to find and we could find it out so much quicker and bring so many more benefits back to life on Earth if we were able to push forward with these science missions, um, particularly to the ice giants as well. Let's have a space boffins mission to Uranus. (laughs) (laughs) If only for the comedy potential. Um, It's very difficult to describe an eclipse to someone who hasn't seen one, and I was a bit sceptical, to be honest, about the the cost and effort we put into getting to the small college town of uh, Corvallis (laughs) in Oregon to witness this year's solar eclipse, but it, it was completely worth it. I mean, this is mind-boggling, I guess, thing, that the fact that the sun, moon and earth are positioned in such a way that the moon can completely black out the sun. I mean, that's that's incredible. Just Absolutely mathematics, incredible. darling, just yeah, mathematics. Yeah, but the, the fact that things have to be in the right place, it's just in the right size. A beautiful the solar system, I Yeah, think. it is. This was my fourth. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, my yeah, second. Yeah, 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 I know. I saw yeah. my first in Peru in, in 1994, my second in 1999 in Cornwall in, in the UK, which is a bit of a washout, an annular eclipse I saw in the Hebrides. But on the morning of the 21st of August, we were sat on a, an astroturf sports field of Oregon State University in Corvallis with a few hundred new best friends as the moon gradually covered the sun and as the light dimmed and it got noticeably colder, this is what it sounded like. getting shivers i am getting shivers it was lovely can you tell that that change in the tone of people's voices from whoa the moon's just about to cover to all of a sudden it's almost shock when people go when they realize how amazing you were you were up the road when yeah i was in salem in oregon Mm. state capital so um but i forgot about the noise until you played it back and it is that kind of because in my head i remembered it being quite silent and um, the other thing which you can't describe and you can't do on radio obviously is just the colour of the sky goes, because it's not black, it's not really... It's not it's a twilight, blue, it's, it's eerie, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and just just incredible. And for about two days afterwards, because I saw the Cornwall eclipse, um, and I don't really remember it because it's really cloudy. Oh, but for about two days afterwards, I was like, did I make that up, what I just saw? Or, and then I was like, maybe I didn't see it. Um, but no, it's it's worth all the effort, it's worth all the jet lag and the lack of sleep and the... A lot of hotels made a lot of money out of that eclipse, let's just say. Um, yeah, I know. Well, you'll love this. Afterwards, I talked to some of the people who were there, sat there on that AstroTurf, who'd come from all over the world and closer to home to witness that event. 
Hi, this is for the Space Boffins podcast. Can I get what you thought about the eclipse? It was incredible. It was amazing. I, we're so lucky to live on a planet that is exactly this right distance from our moon and sun to have that happen. Incredible. Is this your first eclipse? Yes. Oh, just I'm so thrilled just because like it really did like it really did have to be total because right up until the second it was total, it was just it was cool, but it was still like it was just dim out. It was like a dimmer switch. And it was so much different from it just being dark out. It you really it did feel like being in a shadow and just being able to look up at the sun see the corona it, it was amazing and just i i was completely overwhelmed like i love <laughs> it yeah. yeah we, we, we were all, all it was amazing amazing it was amazing i mean you wonder beforehand what it's going to be like and everybody says how amazing that they've seen it before but until you actually do it's very hard to put into words and even now it is <laughs> it's stunning wasn't it it was stunning yes it was we were we drove up from oakland actually all of all almost of all of us here um and yeah it's just amazing it was just a few like a minute it felt like it was less than a minute but it was worth it was about every... one minute 40 seconds or one minute 30 yeah. and um oakland california you came from i'm afraid we beat you coming from england oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes you did <laughs> thanks thanks can I just ask you what you thought of the eclipse? It's for the Space Boffins podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was incredible. We came all the way from France to see it. Oh, good. So actually, you're as far... I just made fun of them because they said they'd come all the way from Oakland, California. And I said, well, we came from England. But if you've come from France, which part of France? You might be slightly a beatness here. Uh, southwest of France in Toulouse. Oh, maybe, well, maybe we're just slightly that. So what did you think? Have you seen one before? No, it was the first one. Oh. It was amazing seeing how dark it went and cold and when the, the, the moon was covering the sun where well, we could see it bare, with our bare eyes and just uh, the crown around. It, it was incredible, just uh, it, it unbelievable. Was a, it was an eerie light, wasn't it? It yeah. was a strange light. It was before. very strange, just before, just like as if my eyes couldn't properly work, yeah. like there was a filter on yes. them. Yeah. It, it was a light I never saw before. Yeah, it was, it was great. Well worth the travel, hey? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, it is, have you, I'm also recalling there seeing stars suddenly pop out and that corona, that was, that was actually the best total eclipse I've ever seen. It, the corona was especially remarkable the way it was stretching out. It, it does actually look like the NASA pictures. What we yeah. saw mm-hmm. and probably what you saw yeah. down the road. I, it I didn't was see like any that. stars, but I saw about three aeroplanes or uh, yeah, a couple of aeroplanes and a helicopter just like whizzing <laughs> by. So I think <laughs> yeah. the NASA science was actually being done or started in Salem. Um, what I loved from that um, clip you just played was your obsession so, to have travelled the yeah, furthest. It's like a compl- <laughs> everything's a, com- everything's a, a competition. competition. Yeah, Sorry. everything's a competition. There was probably somebody from yeah. Australia that I didn't yeah. meet. Well, well, no, but is that a further? Because it's kind of in the middle. Can I put a plug in for Corvallis? Because oh, I thought yeah. Corvallis, what a great town. We, we ended up, I mean, it was a slightly random town. It was what hotel can we get in yeah. Oregon, uh, vaguely near the path. And it was on, it was on the path of uh, totality. Lovely town. Town. Lovely, lovely, people. lovely town. Lovely people. Full of craft, craft beer, beer. <laughs> craft beer, <laughs> bookshop, record shops, restaurants, bookshops, no, vinyl yeah. record I loved shops. Oregon. Fabulous. It yeah. was first time yeah. in Oregon. Corvallis. We're at the risk of turning this podcast into into travel <laughs> podcast or yeah. great places in Oregon podcast. Corvallis. It even had a barber shop because we took our teenage son to oh. it that had a pool table in it. Oh, cool! A fresh popcorn machine. Awesome. Gave you soft drinks. 
And he got a shoulder massage at the yeah. end. Wow. All for $17. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we love so, Corvallis. Yeah. Corvallis, go beavers. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> right. Anyway, still to come, we meet a remarkable engineer who worked with Gus Grissom, Neil Armstrong, and enabled Charlie Duke to go to the moon. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and we're also on Instagram. And next month, we'll be in the Netherlands recording space boffins from the European Space Agency's STEC Open Day. So if you see us or recognise us, do say hello. Now, earlier this year, I was in the Cape Canaveral area making a BBC radio documentary with Wally Funk, the Aviator and Mercury 13 member. And while I was there, I was lucky enough to be introduced to a former British, now American, space engineer called John Tribe. John began his career with de Havilland in the 1950s. He then went on to work on the Blue Streak missile programme in Stevenage, which later became part of a European launcher system, before heading to Florida in February 1961 to work on the Atlas rocket programme. From there, John played an important role as propulsions engineer and engineering manager on the Mercury, Apollo and shuttle programmes. Now retired, we met at his home on a lake surrounded by model trains, rockets and space memorabilia. This is the, uh, the engine control panel for an Atlas rocket, and it's the panel that would be in the blockhouse, and in fact it was in the blockhouse at Complex 36, but it was the same panel that we had for John Glenn's flight. Oh, right. Let me just... So, um, it's, well, this, this, is, it's, uh, yeah, this is the actual panel, the So it's, it's mounted on, I just mounted on wood. On You've mounted it on wood, and it's about, it's about 18 inches... 18 by about six. Six inches. It's It's got that lovely grey background, the writing engine lots control. Of, lots of lights on it and lots of big red buttons. And, and a, key, a red button the, that looks like the nuclear button, actually. Yep. And then a, a the, key the, that's the, still the, in it. What's the key, that? The key is the, is the power con- engine. Oh, it's actually power. It's lit up. Engine ground power. power. Oh, okay. brilliant. And uh, and then, the you know, the, as you go through the various engine controls here, you would... You would arm the system. It says arm. Arm. Engine preparation's complete. That means that all the engine conditions are ready to fire. Uh, you've got a ready light on here. And all that's left is start right here, you see. I don't, I don't, don't, don't let you push it, actually. <laughs> and uh, we'll go, well, we're going to do that. We're going to push the start, and it's going to going to come out. You know, you're going to hear the sound again, okay? And that's, this is actually John Glenn's launch. That's Scott Carpenter telling Jogglin. Okay, that's oh, the you end. just press the red button. Press the red button, it. that just, just cuts it all off. But, uh, that's that's but, so clever. You can but, tell you're an engineer. Well, you know, the funny thing was, you know, the, uh, they called me up from the, you know, they were tearing the blockhouses down out there, and they said, do you want this panel? And I said, absolutely, I'll take it. And, you know, they just sheared off all the cables at the back. So, but luckily, I still had my original schematic for the uh, for this panel, you see, so I could, I could go back into it and pick out the wires and wire it up to, to be able to do this. So that's, that's what that is. And... Uh, but that start button, the actual button that, that uh, Tom O'Malley, who was the test conductor for John Glenn's flight, that actual button was mounted in a separate little uh, stand 
And when he died, his wife asked me to do something with it that was appropriate. So uh, it's in the American Space Museum in Titusville. Was there um, a sense of excitement and achievement at the time that you were doing something special? Yes, that's what made the job so neat. Everything we did was headlines. You know, everything we achieved, anyway, uh, we made a few headlines we just as soon not have made, you know, where things didn't go go well. But, but yeah, we knew we were, we were on the tip of the spear, and, and we knew we were catching the Russians up. It was exciting work, and, and we, we were essentially married to our jobs, you know, Apollo especially. We worked horrendous hours, our, neglected our families. It was a tough time, but it was really, you know, our jobs were just everything to us at that time. I mean, you obviously loved it. Oh, yeah. The work was uh, was intriguing, it was interesting, challenging and rewarding, you know, all those things. As an engineer, how did you progress to Apollo? You know, I came over to the States for two years originally, and we'd been here nearly four. And my wife was anxious to go back to England, so we went back in, in 64. It took me about six weeks to decide that was a mistake, <laughs> and uh, we came back. And, and I came back on the Apollo program. Doing what? I was, uh, you know, back because of my background in propulsion on Atlas, and I picked up propulsion on Apollo. On the command service module, I had all the uh, propulsion systems. There were 16 reaction control thrusters on the service module, 12 on the command module, and then a big service propulsion system engine on the back of the service module. So I started on the unmanned flights back in 65, worked Apollo all the way through to uh, Apollo Soyuz in 1975. What was the biggest challenge about working on a propulsion system for Apollo that needed to be effectively bigger than anything that had gone before? Just making sure that you fly a safe vehicle. You know, so the testing we did was extreme. Uh, we had a lot of redundancy in the, in the systems. The, the propellants that we used were difficult to work with, monomethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. They're hypergolic propellants. They're toxic. They're carcinogenic. We we had to work to tight schedules. You know, the biggie was we've got to get to the moon and bring them back safely in, before 1970, and uh, we all understood that was the goal. It didn't come easy, did either? We had some, some serious issues during testing, you know, trying to develop the vehicle. The biggest issue I ever had on Apollo was on Apollo 16, when during the testing for launch, when we were already on the pad, a technician hooked up a disconnect incorrectly, and uh, without the visibility, we didn't have very much instrumentation on the vehicle because we were trying to save weight by cutting out a lot of that stuff. Uh, we couldn't tell that we weren't pressurizing one side of a bladder when we were supposed to be, and that bladder ruptured. And uh, that tank is in the what we call the pork chop area at the under in the command module of the Apollo. There's a pressure vessel, and then outside that pressure vessel, around the the widest part of the vehicle, were all the tanks and the RCS system, the reaction control system. So that tank was in that area. And the only way we could replace that tank was to roll back the whole stack, the whole Saturn V stack, back to the vehicle assembly building. De-stack the whole spacecraft section, which included the lunar module, carry that back to the operations and checkout building in headquarters area, de-stack the command service module from the SLAW and the lunar module, de-stack the command module from the service module, and then take the aft heat shield off the command module to reach that tank. How long did that take? It, we did the whole thing in two weeks. Again, just working balls to the wall. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was really hard. It's, it's the, interesting some of the language you're using as well, like pork chop and bladder. 
you know, uh, <clears throat> one of the problems I had with my uh, in my English wife at that time was I'd come home and I'd be using these expressions and all the acronyms that become second nature to us out there, and she'd never know what the hell I was talking about. You know? I'd say, I'm, oh boy, I've been on the miss all day working 0052, and you know, and I'd be, and, and I'm, I've, I've had this bladder problem, you know, and she said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> But luckily, you know, my, my second wife, uh, Melinda, is, I met her out there. And, uh, you know, she's totally... She speaks un- your language. She speaks the language. She understands all the acronyms. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very, very convenient. She's, she's a great backup. When we go back and talk about, you know, I told you how we, we, the bladder was busted and the command module and how we fixed it. We were, as a group, we were absolutely beat on at that time because we, were, we had embarrassed Rockwell, as we were at the time, by causing the rollback first time we had to roll a stack back you know and and uh, even though we the engineers were not responsible we you know me and me as the manager you know took the heat because it was in our system and uh, for years you know I, I suffered the uh, the embarrassment of being the guy that was responsible for the bladder you know and I wasn't it happened on a different shift I wasn't even at work but that doesn't matter I took the heat and uh Back in the, I think it was 2009, we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of Apollo 11, and Charlie Duke was down here. You know, Charlie Duke was the astronaut that, uh, you know, was a capsule communicator. We've got a bunch of guys about turn blue. Turn blue, that's the guy, Charlie Duke. And uh, and I was talking to him, and, and, and I said, you know, well, 16 was a traumatic flow for me, and I told him why. He said, you said, you're the guy that broke the bladder? And I said, well, not really, but yeah, I... I, I my group was responsible. He said, well, let me shake you by the hand. I said, how come? He said, I had pneumonia. He said, you slipped the launch a month. He said, I recovered. I got to walk on the moon. He said, I, I, I would not have walked on the moon if it hadn't been for you. And I said, well, that's the first time anybody's ever said anything <laughs> nice about what we did back then, you know. That's brilliant. Well, that brings me to some of the astronauts. You know, which of the astronauts did you meet? Uh, which ones, do you, you know, what, oh. what was your impression? I think I've met all of them, uh, all, certainly all the Mercury astronauts and the Apollo astronauts. So, you know, I got to know a lot of them really well. Getting to the shuttle program, uh, we started cranking them out so fast, I kind of lost touch with a lot of them. But though I've, I've met many. What were they like? What were those Mercury and Apollo astronauts? Hey, they, they were macho. We can do anything. And, uh, you know, they were test pilots in, in, in the early ones anyway. And, uh, and you know, they they... They were rip-roaring. They would have car races down through the Cape. And uh, some of them were really personable. Others were a little grouchy, a little standoffish. Hmm. Neil Armstrong, after after he landed on the moon, was, was very hard to approach. Do uh, you think that's because of the weight of what his yeah, achievement? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think he elected you know early on to say he was not going to be uh, commercial property, uh, like Buzz Aldrin tends to be. Uh, you know, Buzz is out there uh, selling his autograph and selling his pictures, and, and Neil would not do any of that. But he also would not sign much, and he uh, he was not real enthused about having his photo taken with people. He he was kind of withdrawn, very quiet. <laughs> That's funny. I was I was out there for STS-132, which was a shuttle launch. The former Senate director Jay Honeycutt called me over and he said, "Tell me about SpaceX. What are they up to?" You know, and I was, I was telling them what I knew about SpaceX. And this guy leans in from the group and says, excuse me, can I introduce myself? I'm Neil Armstrong. And I said, yeah, well, you don't need an introduction. <laughs> and uh, and somehow he and I finished together and the others had kind of wandered off. So we were just two of us standing there in the middle of this great crowd. The public were all out there for the launch. And I'm thinking, boy, I, I hope nobody recognizes him, you know. 
And, uh, and we were talking, and I said, you know, the last time I met you, I, I was briefing you for Apollo 11. And I said, do you remember we were talking about the reaction control valves? They're magnetically latched. And when you dock with the lunar module, the shock in the vehicle sometimes cause those valves to change state. They, un they unlatch. He said, I remember you. And, and I was just so thrilled that he, 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 he may have just been nice. But he was, he was very nice to me, very personable. And thankfully, somebody took a picture of us just standing there. We were both in blazers and gray slacks. We looked like we were in uniform. And we were just BSing with each other. You know, it's just the neatest picture. I, I, I'm just thrilled that I've got that, you know, him and me. But uh, some of the other guys, you know, Gus Grissom was uh, very, very obliging, but kind of gruff. He lost his temper fairly easily. Uh, we, you know, back on Apollo 1, which was, uh, you know, a really bad time. I was on station for that, for the fire that night, you know, which was, was probably one of the, another traumatic moment in my life. But, but two days before that, you know, I'd, I'd asked him if he'd sign a photograph for my parents who were visiting from England. And he said, oh, sure. Well, after the fire, I thought, well, that's dead loss. You know, we'll never, never see that again. But six months later, I get a call from the secretary in the astronauts' quarters. He said, we finally got around to clearing out Gussie's desk. She said, there's an envelope in here for you. Come over and get it. And it was a signed picture by the three crew of Apollo 1. But Gus, during you know, the lead-up to the fire, he was bad-tempered. You could tell it on the net. Uh, the the uh, technicians that I've talked to that were out there next to the capsule said he was banging his feet. You know, he was, he was, the comm was really bad. He was getting irritated by it. There'd been a bad smell in the command module that afternoon that had irritated him. And then the comm kept acting up, and he says, how the hell are we going to talk between two, back from the moon when we can't even talk between two, uh, two buildings on Earth? And uh, and he was grouchy, and uh, <clears throat> he was also uh, you know out of his couch at the time of the fire, which was was not authorized. What do you mean by out of his couch? He would he got up out of his couch to to start playing with com cables, and uh, that that's that's a no no. Uh, but that again was just indicative of him getting irritated and and exasperated by things not happening fast enough. So you know that sort of sense comes over as you work with them. For, for the engineers, when something like that happens, that must be a terrible, not just a, a, a personal loss in terms of human life, but also professionally. Oh, yeah. It's, that must be quite a, a confidence. Well, we, we failed them. You know, we, we, you know when, you, when you, at the time, we're so focused on what we're doing, you know, our individual little jobs that we're not looking at the big picture. But when you stop after an incident like that and you look back and you think, how could we have put those three guys into a 100% oxygen environment at pressure with all those flammables and, and all the other issues we had and the EOs, that, the engineering orders that were still open? You know, we, we failed them. Where did you end your career then, on the space shuttle? Uh, the, yeah, I, I, you know, I stayed with uh, North American Aviation, had the Apollo program, you know, and I went to them in 1965, and then they became North American Rockwell, and then they became Rockwell International. And I stayed with them all the way through till I retired in 1997. So in 1972, uh, at the end of the lunar part of the Apollo program, uh, before Skylab and ASTP, I started working shuttle uh, as a you know part time. Uh, so from 72 until uh, until the last shuttle flight, I worked shuttle. So that was. And what like, was your job title then? Uh, my final job was chief engineer for Boeing on the orbiter, space shuttle orbiter. So. I headed up like about a 300-odd engineering group at that time. 
advisor. I said I retired in '97, uh, and then I switched straight over to NASA and became a docent with NASA. And I've not been that ever since. I still am. So. And this is an unusual word, I think, for Brits. Yeah, docent is uh, an old fart that uh, has, knows a lot of a lot about the space program in this case, and uh, and he's great. He's like the same guys you would have in the British Museum. You know, the the guys that walk around that that, that have the knowledge that can give you a verbal explanation of what you're looking at and flesh it out and that that's what i do you know i voluntarily yeah yeah it's all all volunteer work uh it keeps me badged it keeps me i have to stay operationally certified so i have to go out and do the training still and and i I just couldn't see back in 1997 when i retired i just couldn't see saying goodbye to it all john tribe former chief engineer for the boeing rockwell company okay finally space 2077 as we commemorate 60 years since the launch of Sputnik. I've got the, I've got the numbers wrong there. It shouldn't be 2077, should it? It should be 87. 60 years from now is 87, isn't it? No. No? No? 77? 77. Maths was never yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's, <laughs> I was right. <laughs> I just suddenly had a panic that I got make, it wrong. But doesn't that make sense, though? Shouldn't it be 40 years from You're now? You're saying... No, because Sputnik was 60 years ago. So, you so 60 years, years from now. Oh, okay. But then you said space 2077. Then you're talking as we commemorate 60 years. What's going to happen? The next 60 years, I mean. Yeah, the next. Exactly. Thanks. Say the next. Yeah. Okay. It does say the next. It doesn't on my. It does. (sighs) What's going to happen in the next? Yeah, but that doesn't. It doesn't sound. (laughs) Let's pick her. Okay, I'll do it again. Finally, Space 2077, as we commemorate 60 years since the launch of Sputnik. What's going to happen in the next 60 years? So we've rather sprung this on on Sarah. It's fine. What's your (laughs) prediction? Okay, so we're in 2087. 2087. No, 2077. (laughs) (laughs) Your math is shocking. Don't don't try and get around it. (laughs) So we're in 2077. It's really difficult to say, actually. How are we going to... I mean, that's really... 2077. No, that's an excuse, Richard. Anyway, Sarah. Uh, What's what's space going to be like, then? In 42 years' time. Space as a whole thing, or the space industry? I think... um, That was a terrible joke. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we all chose to ignore it. There was this silence. Tumbleweed. Um, Jokes were not my strong point. I um, I would like to hope, uh, let's start with the obvious, we'd have had human boots on Mars. I like to think um, we'd have sent a spacecraft um, to our nearest star. I think the wonders of space technology is as long as, or wonders of science actually, as long as it doesn't break the laws of physics, it's not impossible. We just haven't found a way to do it. So I think there is a possibility of something like that. I th- Using um, certainly lasers to propel space, very small spacecraft, I think... Um, Certainly, I'd like to think we're mining asteroids and the moon and we're actually taking manufacturing away from Earth um, into low Earth orbit in order to improve life on Earth. So I think, uh, again, I think more people would have been into space. Um, Space tourism is an interesting one. It hasn't really started just yet, but it probably will and and prices do come down. It's just like with um, aviation 100 years ago. So I think we'll see more people going into space and that has a profound effect again, for life on Earth and how we feel about this planet, and often a very beneficial effect as well, known as the overview effect. Um, And I think things we can't imagine, yeah, I think it's entirely possible that within the next 60 years we'll be able to answer the question of are we alone or not. And I think the the likely answer is there is something else out there, whether it's a single-celled, very simple life um, or something more complex is yet to be determined. Sue, what do you think? Well, uh, I agree. I would like, in a way, that the emphasis on the moon 
to be, I know mining's going to happen. I know there's got to be commercial reasons for going there. But I I have a, a sort of Star Trek altruistic um I want us to be living there as well. I want space tourism. I want there to be it to be like Tomorrowland. I I I want there to be lots of stainless steel and mm-hmm. amazing flying cars and sort of taxi shuttles that take you to the moon and back. I I want to be part of that solar system travel agency effectively those posters that NASA do oh, that are which we've got a lot of them printed and um, framed in our in our office that's what I want my life and other people's life to be a part of because this planet is tiny we are small a small part of a vast universe and this opens it up space opens it up to greater things yeah I mean I think I agree with both of you I mean I, I feel that probably be colonies on the moon um, I think the earth will be orbited by many space stations some with humans on, some robotic, some hotels, those sorts of things. I, I fear about Mars. You talked about boots on Mars, Sarah. I, I fear it's going to be a bit... I think it will happen, but I think it will be a bit like Apollo. We'll go, we'll land, we'll stay a couple of months and then come back and then it won't happen for for months properly. I just Or don't. years, I mean, decades properly after that. I just don't know. You know, I think we can't... I think it's too soon to tell because um, it could be... Let's Let's, you know, play devil's advocate here. It could be... You know, we haven't really got what we wanted in space so far. If we were to go back 60, well, you know, if we go back 50 years, um, so just before Apollo, we expected a lot more by now. So maybe we're being a little too optimistic. But I, I think change is happening. It's happening much faster. And as soon as we get cheaper access to space, which people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are working on, it's going to happen. But I also think we've got to be realistic. A lot of lives are going to be lost and a lot of fortunes are going to be lost. Space is dangerous and we can't take for granted that risk. But I think we need to accept it going forward in the next 60 years. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sarah Crudders, to our guest for uh, coming in. You're brilliant, as always. Oh, so are you yeah. too. <laughs> Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Do join us next month from the Netherlands. Uh, we'll be at Eztech for the open day and get in touch via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And I'll put um, some photos up of that wonderful panel that John Tribe talks about, the Atlas panel, so you can see that. Thanks for listening.